Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Which of the following is correct? Between you and me or between you and I? You and I. Why? That's where I learned it. It's not you and me. It's always you and I. Which of the following is correct? Between you and me or between you and I? Between you and me. Why? I'm not even positive. I always get that wrong. I know. I always want to say between you and I, but yeah. (laughs) From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. Today, episode number three, titled Consider the Lamp Post wherein we'll discuss the hyper-corrected incorrectness of the phrase between you and I. Joining me is Lexicon Valley producer Mike Volo. Hey, Mike. Hey, Bob. All right. My own anecdotal observation tells me that the phrase between you and I is used at least as often, probably far more often, than the phrase between you and me, even though, am I wrong? Between you and me is the only right way of phrasing it. Well, the smartass in me might say, oh, how linguistically quaint of you to suggest that a popular way of phrasing something is grammatically wrong. In other words, if between you and I is, as you're suggesting, actually used far more often, then shouldn't correctness be determined by what people, you know, actually use? So if between you and I isn't wrong, isn't it at least sloppy, unnecessary, a big fat piece of evidence that the uh, speaker is really not comfortable linguistically with him or herself? Okay, so the non-smartass in me would say, you're right, there is a well-defined rule according to which between you and I is wrong. On the other hand, there is also a relatively modern theory, should you subscribe to it, which may undermine that rule. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But I want to begin today in the spring of 1988, when a guy named Joseph Nohavica was a night student at Mercy College in the Bronx, where he lived. During the day, Nohavica drove a truck around New York delivering wise potato chips, and each afternoon he would pull over to the side of the street to eat his lunch and read the New York Times. One day in 1988, in a little feature on the editorial page, the Times noted that many readers had written in about a Dunkin' Donuts commercial that mixed up lie and lay, a very common mistake. And this little feature ended with a kind of cheeky call to action. It said, quote, Alert listeners, keep it up, and may your next campaign be aimed at defeating that soap opera staple between you and I. Nohavica, eating his lunch on the side of the road, got a little ticked off by this and thought, I'm going to write back. So I did. I was an English major, so I wanted to show off as much as I could my writing skills. I had my trusty thesaurus on my side. I picked every pedantic word I could find, and I put this letter together to them. That's Joseph Nohavica. He still lives in the Bronx. 
And I'd like you, Bob, to read the letter to the editor that he wrote back in 1988, because I thought that if anyone could capture the pedantic, scolding, (laughs) self-righteous tone... Well, please, go ahead. Yeah, once again, Mike, I'm moved by the respect that you evince for me. It's just really... (sighs) All right, here's what Noah Vicker wrote to the uh, Times. To the editor, regrettably, you have attacked a much-picked-on victim between you and I. The common idiom is quite proper and predates modern soap operas by a few hundred years. Take, for instance, William Shakespeare... Quote, all debts are cleared between you and I, from the Merchant of Venice. Perhaps the apposition of you and I seems a bit pretentious at times. Nevertheless, it is grammatically precise. Furthermore, suggesting eradication of words or phrases not deemed felicitous by a writer claiming to be a protector of proper English is, in reality, a contradiction. It is the soap opera writer who is the true protector of the language, he opts to emulate Shakespearean eloquence, and between you and I, it is Shakespeare I would opt to emulate. See, I knew it. You really delivered that well. Yeah, I nailed it. You, it's, <laughs> it's, my, uh, it's my native pretentiousness. I just knew you had it in you. Now, Noah Vicka's letter is published. He's very excited. A week later, he's sitting once again in his delivery truck. And I took out my copy of the New York Times, and I opened it up right away to the op-ed and to the editorial page. And I looked at Russell Baker's column, and I couldn't believe what I saw. I had to look at it a couple. I put the paper down. I got up, and I walked, like, around, and I went back to the newspaper, and I saw my name right at the top of the page. I couldn't believe it, you know, and it starts out with Joseph Novicka, comma. Here you are, a student, a truck driver in your spare time, and you're getting into a grammatical debate with Russell Baker. <laughs> That's right. The only thing I needed against me at that time, in addition to that, would maybe have been William Sapphire. I may have quit school. <laughs> First of all, I just want to observe that it's a little bit cruel of the New York Times, I think, to publish Nohavika's letter and then unleash the great esteemed Russell Baker to rebut him. If you read Baker's column... It's very witty and humorous, as he always was. And he pointed out that Shakespeare was wrong. In fact, his column was titled A Slip of the Quill. And he says that the established rules of grammar are very clear on this. Between is a preposition. The object of the preposition must be in the objective, or what's sometimes called the accusative, case. And to quote directly from Russell Baker, the accusative form of the first-person singular pronoun is me. Therefore, the correct phrase is between you and me. Yeah, that's what I was saying at the beginning. But you got to all, oh, no, the language is malleable on me. I'm not sure I took that tone, but yeah, I did imply that. And we're getting there. But first, let me quote Russell Baker one more time. He said that Shakespeare simply nodded off on this one. Nodded off, Mike, or, or just, you know, careless as people are today with basic rules of grammar. Okay, so let's assume for the moment that between you and I is incontrovertibly wrong and that Shakespeare was careless. But are people more careless now than ever before? I mean, many people who object to between you and I talk about it as a recent phenomenon. Between you and I was never nearly as common, they say, as it is now, Shakespeare notwithstanding. The language is going to hell. And anecdotally, I asked my father-in-law, 
who tends to be very careful and precise with his grammar, when he thought between you and I became widespread in the language, and he said about 10 or 15 years ago. Are you insane? You've been married for like five minutes. You're already going after your father-in-law. That is not going to be an availing strategy long term. I didn't name him by name. He could be any father-in-law. So there's this term in linguistics called recency illusion, and it describes the mistaken perception some have that a particular usage is more recent than it is. So my father-in-law thinks between you and I dates back to the 1990s. The New York Times took note of it in the 1980s. In the 1970s, the critic John Simon published a column in Esquire in which he called Between You and I an abomination, and he said, quote, Not so long ago, any halfway self-respecting high school student would sooner have bitten off and swallowed the tip of his pencil than have committed that error. Now, John Simon was in the fulmination business. He was always in high dudgeon about something or other. But doesn't he also make clear here that he is... Uh, fallen prey to the recency illusion? Yeah, that quote suggests he too thought it was recent. And my suspicion was that you could keep going back in time, finding people who claim that it's only just now a recent phenomenon. So I asked Patricia O'Connor, she's the author of Woe Is I, The Grammarphobe's Guide to Better English in Plain English. (laughs) That is the most fantastic title. And by the way, gets right to the point of what we're discussing. If she didn't exist, you would have had to invent her. (laughs) Maybe I did. I asked O'Connor, when did Between You and I become prevalent in the language? People have been using Between You and I since early Middle English, and people have been calling attention to it since the middle of the 18th century. The earliest complaint I found about it was mentioned in a commentary on English that was published in 1767. The author, uh, Archibald Campbell, says that in an earlier edition of his book, he had used the phrase between you and I and was criticized by reviewers for that. And what he says in response is, in the first edition of this work, I had used the phrase between you and I, which, though it must be confessed to be ungrammatical, is yet almost universally used in familiar conversation. So it's not new. Almost universally used, and this is back in the 1700s. O'Connor says that Samuel Pepys used it, Daniel Defoe, Mark Twain. My favorite example of hers was from Dave Garraway, who was the original host of the Today Show. When the show debuted 60 years ago in January of 1952, Garraway said it was, quote, the very first good morning of what I hope and suspect will be a great many good mornings between you and I. Uh, Funnily enough, his chimpanzee, his sidekick on the show, J. Fred Muggs, never got that wrong. Oh, yeah, that guy was totally whip smart. (laughs) He certainly was. Okay, so it's not new, but it still sounds so off, you know, so obviously ungrammatical. Well, you're right. I mean, there's no ambiguity regarding the rule. But then why are we so prone to breaking the rule? And here's where some theories come into play. The most popular theory is called hypercorrection. And it works something like this. Many of us grew up using me incorrectly, saying things like, Bob and me are hosting this podcast. It should be Bob and I, because here I is part of the subject, not an object. We had people correcting us all the time, 
So much so, the theory goes, that we now hypercorrect, using I too much, even when it's wrong. Yeah, that's precisely what I'd always assumed. It completely conforms to my understanding of why people do that. But O'Connor says there's a problem with the hypercorrection theory in this case. Since between you and I has been common sense Middle English, before there were any prescribed rules of grammar, perhaps there's something more important than hypercorrection going on here, or something that gets to the very structure of the language. And this is where Noam Chomsky and modern linguists come in. They have a very persuasive theory that holds that in a construction like between you and I, the entire phrase you and I is the object of the preposition, and that for the individual elements within it, the case becomes arbitrary. What do you think would happen if in sixth grade your teacher corrected you and said, you know, it's between you and me, not I, and mm-hmm. you said, well, you haven't read Chomsky? <laughs> I would think that would be a very um, precocious elementary school student who made that argument. <laughs> do you think it would hold any sway with the teacher? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You'd probably have to get uh, an E for effort. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike. Now, If I understand what O'Connor's saying, it's that if there are multiple pronouns after a preposition, they kind of act together and the case is just entirely up for grabs? Yeah, exactly. Think of it with variables between X and Y. Conceptually, X and Y, taken as a whole, is the object of the preposition. The variables themselves can be whatever they want to be. They can even be reflexive between you and myself. Maybe I'm a snob, but when I hear that usage, I internally roll my eyes. Much as I would roll my eyes if I were in someone's uh, apartment and saw on the bookshelf a bunch of James Patterson novels and three volumes of Deepak Chopra. You know, I I become flushed with a sense of superiority. (laughs) Uh, Am I wrong? Well, I actually think you're getting at the problem that literate people have, or people who aspire to be literate, in their approach to the language. Let's take this example. I think we have several choices here. One, you can observe the traditional grammatical rule and always say between you and me, because you don't want to seem ignorant to people who know and care about that rule. Patricia O'Connor told me that that's what she does. Two, you can sort of place yourself conspicuously in the theoretical avant-garde and always say between you and I and when someone corrects you invoke Chomsky. But, you know, that has its own consequences. You have to really want to be that guy. Or three, you cannot worry about it and tell yourself that if occasional fallibility is okay for Shakespeare and Mark Twain and Jessica Simpson, who has a song called Between You and I, then it's okay for you. Wow, Jessica Simpson sings a dubious usage, (laughs) that rocks my world. And, you know, there is a fourth option, one that I personally find entirely unacceptable. Remember John Simon, the critic who wrote the column in Esquire? He advocates, of course, using between you and me and militantly proselytizing. I'm going to ask you to read this passage once again, affecting your most persnickety tone. All right, Mike, I will do that. But with this disclaimer, John Simon, when he was writing, was not just persnickety, he was a prick. And he said aloud what I merely, you know, think quietly and somewhat guiltily to myself. But anyway, here's what he had to say. 
What then are we to do about it? Simple. We fight. Whenever, wherever we hear someone say between you and I and whoever the offender may be, we go into action. To strangers in the street, we may have to be polite. To superiors, we may even have to be somewhat humble. But correct them, we must. To all others, we may be as sharp, forceful, tonitruous as the circumstances permit, or demand, let family, friends, and neighbors hear us correct them loudly and clearly. Let between you and me resound across the land. Otherwise, there will soon be no more communication between you and me. I'm pretty sure I don't even know what tonitruous means, but... Wow, you really do that well. Okay, once again, I feel like I've been insulted. As always, Bob, I have a coda. We started this conversation with you suggesting that between you and I, although wrong, was perhaps far more common than between you and me. And in 2003, a couple of sociolinguists, Philip Angermeyer and John Singler, looked at what people actually use. If we think of it again in terms of variables between X and Y, they identified three competing permutations here, between you and I and between you and me, and also between me and you, putting the me first. And of course, between I and you. Yeah, but as they point out, virtually nobody says that. It just sounds ridiculous. (laughs) Says yourself. Exactly. So between you and me, they call the standard usage. Between you and I, the polite usage. And between me and you, the vernacular. And they found that each of these three constructions is favored by a particular demographic. Generally speaking, Children and adults with limited formal education, no more than high school, say, disproportionately use their vernacular, me and you. The oldest people they studied and those with the most education, PhDs, tended to use the standard you and me, and those, as they put it, intermediate in age and level of education, favor the polite between you and I. That, that actually scans with my experience. It makes a fair amount of sense. Yeah, it does make sense. So let's get back to the original question. Which form is winning? They say in the paper that among the youth and the less educated, between me and you is consistent over time, and that doesn't appear to be changing. For the rest of us, there's much more of a push and pull between the standard and the polite forms, each with its own advantage. What between you and me has in its favor is this sort of ongoing backlash against between you and I. You mean because of jerks like me who turn up our nose or just flinch whenever we hear it? There's you, there was John Simon, there was Kingsley Amos. There's a whole kind of cottage industry of between you and I detraction. What between you and I has in its favor, though, is that it's often used by celebrities and politicians and socialites, people that other people tend to emulate. So here's their concluding sentence. No clear winner seems to be emerging. Rather, as they have apparently done for more than 400 years, the vernacular, the polite, and the standard seem to be continuing in a dynamic state of stable ternary variation. Ternary? You know, like 
involving three things. Ah, of course. Now, I did my own very unscientific Googling of Between You and Me and Between You and I. Between You and Me gets about four and a half million hits. And Between You and I, you were totally right, Bob, 80 million hits. I'm not sure how unscientific it is. Rigorous, perhaps not, but that is a pretty enormous sample size. It is, and it's a pretty big disparity. By the way, between me and you, the vernacular gets about a million and a half hits. And, you know, there's nothing grammatically incorrect about the vernacular. It's only a custom of politeness, really, that says we place ourselves last in a list. In fact, Patricia O'Connor told me that she would rather be technically grammatically correct and say between me and you than polite and say between you and I. Oh, I'm, I'm totally with her on that. You know, I've always thought that placing the me as the last in the list was a sort of false humility of the sort people affect when they're, you know, bragging. I was fortunate enough to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. Yeah, yeah, you were fortunate enough. <laughs> You're bragging about having the Congressional Medal of Honor. Just, you know, <laughs> give me a break. All right, Mikey, time for this week's Lexiconundrum, or actually last week's Lexiconundrum. So last week I noted that there are many two-word phrases in the English language for which the first word is what I called an adjectival present participle, and the second word is a noun. I use the examples marching band, curling iron, and I posted a series of initials on the webpage and asked our listeners to find two-word phrases that fit that pattern for those initials. I'll read off the most common entries for each of them. Bowling alley for BA, driving range, filling station and firing squad were sort of neck and neck for the FS one. Living will was clear winner. Moving van, printing press, rocking chair. For SV, there was also sort of a tie between singing voice and shrinking violet, tuning fork, and finally, whipping boy. Now, a couple of people who were sort of self-described language pedants, or as I call them, our base. Okay, I'll just call them some listeners. They point out that I'm not quite accurate when I describe all of these words as adjectival present participles, words like marching in the phrase marching band or curling in the phrase curling iron. In some cases, these words may be more accurately described as adjectival gerunds. And here's sort of the difference. In the phrase marching band, the band is itself doing the marching. So marching is a participle acting as an adjective. But in the phrase bowling alley, the alley is not bowling. Rather, it's an alley for bowling. And so bowling is more like a gerund acting as an adjective. Now, I asked Patricia O'Connor about this, and she told me that some grammarians make the distinction, others do not. She considers it unnecessary hair-splitting and regards them all as participles. And interestingly, she said that the Cambridge grammar of the English language refers to them all as gerund participles, hyphenated, and says that there is, quote, no viable distinction between the two. Nevertheless, I appreciate the hair-splitting by our listeners. It's part of what makes language interesting. And so thank you for the observation. 
another listener wrote in to make a different observation. He said the adjectival present participles, worst band name ever. (laughs) Yeah, that's cute. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me of an interview I read with Mick Jagger some years ago where he said that he wanted the band's name to be the adjectival present participles and Keith Richards wanted the band's name to be the adjectival gerunds. They settled on the Rolling Stones, which, if you're paying attention, features an adjectival present participle. So I guess Mick Jagger won out in the end. Are you drunk? (laughs) If I live to be a thousand years old, I will never stumble upon a nerdier joke than that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, from your lips to God's ears. All right, let's go to this week. Okay. This week's lexiconundrum requires a bit of an explanation. The editors of Merriam-Webster's Usage Dictionary have identified two major types of usage of between you and I. There is what they call the transactional between you and I, which suggests some sort of personal exchange. All debts are cleared between you and I. That line from The Merchant of Venice is of the transactional variety. Then there is what they call the confidential between you and I. And these are very common in spoken English and also in correspondence. So, for example, Lord Byron wrote a letter to his half-sister Augusta in which he said of the English town Southwell, where he was vacationing at the time, between you and I, I wish was swallowed up by an earthquake. That's harsh. What happened to him in that town? Did he get the clap? I think actually it was the opposite. If I remember from reading the letter, he was really bored. Didn't get enough Byronic action, huh? I guess so. I don't know. Too peaceful, too tranquil for him, which makes me think actually that he and I are looking for very different things in a vacation spot because boring sounds nice to me. So I've identified what I think are at least two additional types of between you and I, one of which I have a name for, one of which I would like a name for. In the spirit of Merriam-Webster's naming convention for the other two types, transactional and confidential, I call this first one differential. For example, Tennessee Williams, during an interview once, compared himself to Tom, the protagonist from The Glass Menagerie. He said, the principal difference between he and I is stamina. Another example of this type is from Jon Stewart during his interview with Chris Wallace of Fox News. He said, here is the difference between you and I. I'm a comedian first. So are you okay, Bob, with differential as the name for that one? Yeah, I don't care. (laughs) Thanks. So here's an example of what I think is yet another type of between you and I. Imagine that we, Bob, are planning a trip to South America, and we're hoping to visit both Argentina and Brazil. You speak fluent Portuguese, I speak fluent Spanish, and I say something like, between you and I, we've got it covered. I need a name for that variety of between you and I. Well, first of all, I should ask you, is that indeed different from the other three? Well, first of all, yes, in the sense that the other three, you know, could possibly happen and we are not traveling to South America together. It's just, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a non-starter. It's a theoretical example. But I do, I do buy that it is a discrete usage compared to the uh, others you've mentioned. Okay, the lexiconundrum is to come up with a name for this variety of Between You and I, and also to identify any other varieties that I may have missed. As always, send your comments, ideas, and answers to the lexiconundrum to slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. 
You can find our episodes online at slate.com slash lexicon valley. And we would very much appreciate you subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks to Joseph Nohavica and Patricia O'Connor, author of Woe Is I. And many, many thanks also to Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mike, we're done here. We're done. Later, Gator. <laughs>